0: You're listening to an airwave media podcast.
1: Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. And this week, we are talking THC. So if you didn't tune into last week's episode, we covered THC's cousin, CBD. CBD is all over the place. We talk about the available evidence or lack thereof, supporting some of the claims about CBD. So if you have not tuned into that, what are you waiting for? Go check it out. But today we're going to cover THC, and honestly, there is so much here. I don't know how we're going to cover it in thirty minutes, but um, let's uh, let's get into it. Let's see what we could do. So. Some strains of the cannabis plant, often called marijuana, weed, grass, ganja, reefer, etc., contain a psychoactive compound called THC that produces a high when ingested or smoked. Andrea is going to give us a breakdown of THC. Um, What does it stand for? Tetrahydrocannabinol. How do you pronounce that? Tetrahydrocannabinol. All right, I'm going to leave that up to Andrea. I'm just (laughs) going to say THC. And all jokes aside, you know, we know that the Jeff Spicolis of the world like to ingest smoke, THC, for you know for some of its psychoactive effects, which we'll talk about, but others take it for its um, medicinal applications, and it's not a, a joking matter for everyone who consumes it. So let's get into it. So to kick things off, let's just talk briefly about the global legal marijuana market size, which was valued at $13.2 billion, With a B dollars in 2021 and is expected to grow exponentially at a compound annual growth rate of 25.5% from now through 2030. And the growing demand for legal marijuana has been a primary factor in the growth of the market. So, throughout this episode, we'll talk about the different ways to ingest THC. Um, Probably the most common way is by smoking marijuana. And when you smoke marijuana, THC and other chemicals in the plant pass from the lungs into our bloodstream, which rapidly carries them throughout the body to our brain. And and smoking in particular leads you to experience effects almost immediately. And many people report experiencing a pleasant euphoria, a sense of relaxation, but this can vary dramatically from person to person. Uh, But some people say that they experience heightened sensory perception, things like brighter colors, Uh, laughter, altered perception of time, and increased appetite, aka munchies. But not everyone has a pleasant experience. And some people experience things like anxiety, fear, distrust, or panic. Um, Again, it varies person to person. It depends on how much you're consuming. And really, uh, these negative effects tend to be more common when a person is ingesting too much THC, when the marijuana has an unexpectedly high potency, or the person is inexperienced and doesn't really know what to expect. And if you take very large doses of marijuana, you can experience acute psychosis, hallucinations, delusions, and a loss of the sense of personal identity. So just as a total aside, my hubby, Ethan, who's an ER doc, he has said that he has seen patients come in who are not it's not like THC poisoning, it's that they've consumed too much THC, and, and we'll talk about this, but it's actually typically edibles, and when you're when you're consuming THC and you can't really, well, anyway, I, I don't want to sort of ruin the punchline there, we'll talk about it, but he, he does see some patients who come in who are experiencing anxiety or, you know, feeling like they're losing control after consuming too much. So we'll get into all of that, but Andrea, to set the stage, we need a little micro Bio primer, what is
0: THC? <laughs> All right, so THC is a chemical known as tetrahydrocannabinol, and it is considered to be the principal psychoactive component of the cannabis plant. So, if you recall from our CBD episode last week, we talked about the cannabinoids and the endocannabinoid receptors that recognize these molecules. We produce some of our own cannabinoid molecules, those are called the endocannabinoids, meaning self produced or, or internal. But THC is an addition. Additional cannabinoid molecule that is found in the cannabis plants. In these cannabis plants, there are at least 113 identified cannabinoid molecules, and THC just happens to be one of them. Now, it's considered to be the principal psychoactive component. And if you recall from last week, we, we noted that CBD is technically not classified as psychoactive. So psychoactive compounds or psychoactive drugs are considered to be chemicals that change or alter the function of your nervous system. And this can lead to alterations in your perception, in your mood, in your consciousness, in your behavior, and even in your cognitive ability. So when we talk about THC, again, if you recall from last week, they actually has the same exact molecular formula as CBD with 21 carbons, 30 hydrogens, and two oxygen molecules. But the molecular structure is very, very different between CBD and THC. Now, on top of that, there are variants of THC molecules. So we call these isomers, which are almost like mirror images or things like that. So when we typically talk about THC, we're talking about this particular structure called delta-9-THC. So it actually stands for trans delta 9 tetrahydrocannabinol. Don't worry too much about what that's called, but Delta-9-THC is what we're referring to. Now, there is another molecule called Delta-8-THC that's a little bit of a gray area with regard to legality, and it actually crosses the line between CBD and THC that we're going to discuss in a little bit. So, THC was first discovered by an Israeli chemist in 1964, and it was found particularly when smoked, so... When combusted and inhaled, THC is absorbed into the bloodstream, it diffuses across those capillaries in your bronchioles, in your lungs, and it travels to the brain. And what it does is it interacts with those cannabinoid receptors that we talked about in the last episode. So remember, CB1 or or cannabinoid receptor 1, those are found predominantly in the central nervous system. And CB2 or cannabinoid receptors 2 are found in circulating immune cells, the spleen, and other sorts of derived cells from macrophages such as um, bone cells and even some specific liver cells so Delta 9 THC which is the THC that we're going to be referring to for the most part here those activate those two receptors now they tend to actually predominantly bind with those cb1 receptors which are found mostly in the central nervous system so particularly in the cerebral cortex the cerebellum and the basal ganglia regions of the brain. And these are the regions that are responsible for thinking, for memory, for pleasure, and for coordination. And so once THC molecules bind with those receptors, it leads to activation of them. It leads to a variety of production of various chemicals and other sorts of metabolites that actually facilitate those euphoric effects that everybody often attributes to feeling high. And so that's what we're referring to when we're talking about the psychoactive effects of THC. It's through the activation of those cannabinoid receptors. But on top of that, when you consume THC, you metabolize those molecules just like you metabolize everything that you consume. And the metabolites, which are the breakdown byproducts of THC, can actually also impact your body as well. So as an example, ethanol, which is the alcohol that we find in beverages that we consume, alcoholic beverages, the consequences of having a hangover, the consequences of consuming ethanol, the hangover is actually a result of the metabolism of the alcohol. The ethanol is first converted into a molecule called acetaldehyde, and then it actually is converted to acetic acid, which is the same acid that we find in vinegar. But that actually can lead to those intoxication effects, including nausea and vomiting and things like that. So it actually is related to the metabolism of these molecules. And The same is true for THC, not that it's going to cause nausea or vomiting, but as your body metabolizes THC, it produces byproducts. And one of those called 11-hydroxy-THC is a metabolite that's actually even a little more potent than THC itself. So basically you consume THC. You activate those cannabinoid receptors in the brain. You start to feel euphoric. Your body starts to metabolize THC into byproducts such as 11-hydroxy-THC. And then those go and activate the cannabinoid receptors. And it's kind of like this cycle where you can actually, you know, have a more potent effect as a result of your body processing the molecule. And of course, this is going to vary depending on how you're consuming THC. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in in a bit, but different routes of administration. So inhaling THC, it's going to immediately pass into the pulmonary arteries through the capillaries in your lungs. And that's going to quickly get across the blood-brain barrier into the brain where it can then activate the CB1 receptors, those, those cannabinoid receptors. However, you're consuming it when you're ingesting it Orally, THC is actually going to be absorbed primarily in the small intestine, and then that's going to pass it over to the liver where it's going to be metabolized by those enzymes we talked about last week, the cytochrome P450 enzymes, and that's going to actually change the distribution of those molecules within your body and ultimately the physiological effects that those molecules will have on your body.
1: Okay. So last week we were were saying that CBD doesn't really, I guess some people say it has some psychoactive effects, but it doesn't really get you high. So then what's, why does THC do that? But CBD does not.
0: Yeah. So, you know, it's a really good question. It's not fully elucidated yet in terms of, you know, the distinct pathways, but the biggest reason is because while they both bind to these cannabinoid receptors, the ultimate downstream processes that occur as a result of binding those receptors are different. So when THC binds to cannabinoid receptor one, it leads to activation of the receptor and it leads to an enzymatic cleavage and the enzymatic production of what we call second messengers, which are chemicals within our cells that lead to um, activation of other receptors, other proteins, the release of neurotransmitters and things like that. And so that ultimately changes the different types of neurotransmitters we're secreting, how many of them, and et cetera. And so that leads to those feelings of euphoria, the relaxation, et cetera. In contrast, CBD does bind those receptors, but it doesn't activate them as potently. So it doesn't lead to the same magnitude of responses. But there is a little bit of discussion where people, some people or certain camps want to classify CBD as psychoactive, meaning it can have some impact on mentation and psychological function, but not an intoxicant, which would be kind of where THC would fit in, in that it makes you feel high, it makes you have that euphoria, it can alter your cognition and things like that.
1: Right, because some people say that CBD makes them feel a bit more relaxed and calm, so in that sense, I guess some people are saying it it could be psychoactive. Exactly, exactly. it's, It's not exactly as you said, that intoxicated, high it's it's hard to sort of articulate. The oh, absolutely. But there's
0: definitely a difference. Absolutely, and you know, and that you know, I mean, there's a lot of complexity here, right? These molecules are similar but different, and that's true for all of these cannabinoids, right? There's hundreds of them, including ones that we produce ourselves, and you know, as we talked about with runner's high, we produce these endocannabinoids, which activate these receptors, which make us feel euphoric, and you know, and that's true for a lot of these uh, molecules, and so. You know, there's certainly a lot of more molecular biology research that's ongoing in order to kind of better tease out the really distinct differences. But suffice it to say, you know, A lot of it has to do with, first, the initial interaction with these receptors in the brain, the regions in the brain that they're being expressed in, and then ultimately what happens after these molecules interact with those receptors in the brain.
1: So speaking of that, there's a great visual that was adapted from an article in Scientific American, which I think we should definitely share to our show notes, which shows marijuana's effects on the different parts of the brain. And so, I mean, I could say the different parts of the brain, but the the great thing about this graphic is it it shows the different functions of the different parts of the brain that are affected by marijuana. So like the hypothalamus, basal ganglia, ventral striatum, amygdala, brainstem and spinal cord, neocortex, hippocampus, and cerebellum. And so, you know, these different parts of the brain, they regulate movement, coordination, learning and memory, and higher cognitive functions such as judgment and pleasure. So THC is definitely affecting... In a lot of different ways, and I know we're we're going to talk more about that. Before we go on to chat about legality and such, is there anything else on the microbiome front that you want to chat about now? I mean, I think the the big takeaway
0: is, of course, you know, there are a lot of different compounds within these marijuana products or cannabis products. Um, But right now, or at least, you know, with the knowledge that we have, the information we have, the predominant compound that's responsible for a lot of these mind altering effects is the Delta 9 THC. And that's what's found in the marijuana plant. Now, I want to talk more about Delta 8 THC, but I think it I think it makes more sense to talk about it after we cover the legality.
1: I totally agree. And I honestly cannot wait to cover Delta 8 because (laughs) right before I moved, so I I don't know, if you're new here, I always say I'm from Brooklyn, but I lived in Florida for six years and now I live in Western Massachusetts. Delta 8 was all over the place in South Florida. I have never seen anything like it. I guess, you know, it's sort of, well, well, we'll talk about it, but it's not regulated. So it's sort of the Wild West right now. And I can't, I think it'll be great to hear from you, Andrea, about how Delta 8 and Delta 9 are different. And anyway, we'll get into all that. But talking about the legality of THC. So back in 2012, voters in Colorado approved a ballot initiative legalizing the recreational use and sale of cannabis. And it was the first state in the U.S. to do so. And since then, 18 other states, as well as Washington D.C. and Guam have gone on to legalize the drug in over the past decade, and you know there's this public support for legalization. And Andrea, before we hit record, we were talking about how you know marijuana is not legal at the federal level right now, and laws vary widely by state. In some places, it's legal for recreational use; in others, it's legal only for medicinal use; others, it's it's not legal for either. And so, it's a really political issue. I think right now, it's safe to say that it's it's really mainstream, in particular among Democratic politicians. Now, some Republicans are also backing the idea of legalization. It's also an economic issue, too,
0: because, you know, states that have legal marijuana as a consumer product, there are tax credits. It brings in a huge amount of income for the state. It actually helps boost local economy. I mean, it's it's a very complex issue when we talk about the legality and the the access of marijuana products.
1: And, Andrea, I know people love to remind us that our expertise is in science and not <laughs> politics, but this is we have to talk about this. Um, <laughs> yeah. the, this is an important piece of the puzzle here when it comes to marijuana. And there, there's so much that's been going on even in the past several months. So, you know, back in, in April of this year, the House passed a marijuana decriminalization bill that's, you know, where we're talking a lot about federal decriminalization of of weed, right? Just earlier this month, President Biden said that he was uh, issuing pardons to everyone convicted of the federal crime of simple marijuana possession and called upon governors to make similar moves for convictions under state laws. So there's a lot going on here. So as you said, advocates, they talk about the economic impacts of it. You know, it could be a real moneymaker for states. Some say that it's a necessary social justice initiative, especially because marijuana laws have disproportionate affected people from minority communities contributing to mass incarceration. But then opponents say that it poses a public health and safety risk. Um, Some are just morally opposed to legalization. Um, And so, I don't know, people are all over the place. Some are (laughs) very concerned about, for example, driving while under the influence of marijuana. But then proponents then argue that it's not as dangerous as alcohol, which is legal, and point to evidence that it has therapy benefits, which we're going to talk about. So what about the global legality? Can you talk about that? Yeah, so again,
0: it's it's a little bit of a mixed bag as well. So THC, along with the isomer, so those those similar structure um, molecules, is one of three cannabinoids that are scheduled by the UN Convention on Psychotropic Substances, and the other two are molecules called dimethylheptylpyran and parahexyl. In 1971, it was listed as a Schedule One drug, but then it was actually reclassified to Schedule Two in 1991 after the World Health. Organization made a recommendation, and since then, the WHO has recommended the reclassification to even less stringent Schedule Three uh, drug. Um, as a plant, cannabis is scheduled by the Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs as a Schedule One and a Schedule Four. So those are going to be um, your your hemp-based cannabis and then your stereotypical marijuana-based cannabis products. It's still listed under Schedule 1 by U.S. federal law, and it's just kind of already, you know, touched on. There are different state-by-state laws. Um, It is not decriminalized on a federal level. Um, The current federal law under the Controlled Substances Act states that it has no accepted medical use and also a lack of accepted safety. But that's a little bit contradictory, and we're going to get into that in a second. But there are some FDA-approved THC-containing drugs. So So there clearly are some data to support the FDA approval of THC for medicinal purposes. So again little bit of a gray area. That formulation, which is called dronabinol, is a capsule that's available in the U.S., Canada, Germany, and
1: New Zealand by prescription. And we're going to talk a little bit more of that in a bit. So while we're talking about legality, so at the federal level, it's Delta 9 THC that is not legal at the federal level. However, (laughs) Delta 8 is still technically legal, right? Yes. So let's
0: let's talk about that. So as I just mentioned, when you're talking about weed, or I'm going to go smoke some weed or whatever you're going to do, um, we're referring to Delta 9 THC. So that is the particular isomer of tetrahydrocannabinol that is predominant in your cannabis plants. However, there are other slight structural modifications of THC that also exist, and one is delta 8 THC. And typically, we don't actually really even think about that until recently. So, typical cannabis plants produce very little natural delta 8. So, we don't in the past never really considered that to be our THC. We we always factored in delta 9 THC. That's the one that's in abundance. It's very Very simple to extract that from THC. That's why you'll find THC containing products everywhere, right? Just like the CBD market, right? You've got gummies, you've got stroopwafels, you've got chocolate, you've got lollipops, you've got um, resin, you've got all sorts of purified, you've got vape cartridges. And of course, we're going to talk more about ways to consume it. But until recently, Delta 8 THC people never really thought about it because it takes a lot more effort to extract it from cannabis plants because it's in such low concentration. However, if you recall from last week, we talked about that 2018 Farm Bill, which legalized the production of hemp, which is a essentially non-THC producing plant that's also in the cannabis family, it has to be less than 0.3% Delta 9 THC, which is that threshold for the legal hemp that could be produced with the 2018 Farm Bill. However, we can actually produce Delta 8 THC from CBD extracted from hemp products using various solvents and organic chemistry to extract them. Now, this conversion process, so basically taking CBD that's extracted from hemp-containing products, uh, it's a little bit pricier, but it means that you can produce Delta-8-THC-containing products. And because of this little loophole, these are technically legal. So a lot of folks have kind of figured out this gray area where In your state, perhaps Delta-9-THC, which is what we consider THC, is illegal. But because of the farm bill and the legality of hemp, you can extract and produce Delta-8-THC. And sell that. Now, because delta 8 THC is THC, it can lead to these psychotropic effects. It can cause a high. However, it is considered to be much less potent than delta 9 THC. Most people consider delta 9 to be about twice as strong. There typically are more side effects or more pronounced psychoactive features of delta 9 THC. Delta 8 THC works more slowly, more gradually compared to delta 9 THC. But however, Delta 8 THC is still THC. And so there have been some bans at the state level. So there are currently 15 states that restrict the sale and use of Delta 8 THC products. Um, And there are another six states that have various legislative actions that are pending still. So Again, it's a little bit of the Wild West still. You know that there's always going to be loopholes when it comes to these sorts of products. And that's why, you know, this conversation at a national level is is obviously relevant, you know, to everybody.
1: All right. So that's Delta 8 Wild West. And and the, the research that we're going to present um, is really focused on. What people just Delta Nine, right, and just the the, what people think of as reefer. I don't. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. well, you know, and also, and also like
0: we say thc right and when we say thc we're saying delta 9 thc but like when we're talking about smoking marijuana you're smoking the whole plant right, right. and there are as i mentioned 113 cannabinoids and a, a lot of other compounds in these plants right so it's complex right we we haven't teased out every single little thing that's happening so while we can kind of generalize and say these are the impacts of thc right it might not be as simple as that
1: all right so speaking of smoking you know we we've been referencing the different ways that people can ingest THC. And the most common is is typically inhalation, smoking, right? Smoking weed. And, you know, in particular for people who use marijuana uh, medicinally, it makes inhalation very effective because it's sort of like, think about using an inhaler for an asthma attack, right? There was a study done in the Journal of Chemistry and Biodiversity in 2007, and the study found that subjects who consumed cannabis via inhalation reported feeling the effects within minutes with peak effects around the hour mark and total duration around two hours. Now, one of the benefits to inhalation over, let's say, you know, ingesting or oral ingestion of, of marijuana, which we'll talk about in a second, is that it's very unlikely to over consume it because the effects are so immediate. You can kind of temper, you know, h- how much of an effect you're getting. But again, you know, there's so much variation due to a variety of factors such as THC content, the depth and length of inhalation, people's smoking styles and your previous marijuana exposure you know do you have a tolerance to it?
0: And certain you know everybody hears about strains and things like that and indica and sativa and this that and the other And yeah, you know there are differences right These are plants and plants produce and actually these cannabinoids are produced evolutionarily for plants. Benefits. You know, we talked about the appeal to nature fallacy, like plants produce chemicals for for reasons such as to ward off predators to plants like insects and whatnot. And so, yeah, certain species or certain strains or certain variants are going to produce different levels of each of these cannabinoids. And so, you know, day to day, it might not be equal.
1: So some people who who smoke, they they use vaporizers and this is sort of a totally different different thing. Um, so basically, you're using vaporizing devices which utilize oils, and these are concentrated forms of cannabis. So whereas the flower, the bud, contains typically between 5 to 20% THC, oils are very concentrated, and they can contain up to 80% THC. So if you're a novice consumer, this could be a lot. So just something to, to keep in mind. And, and also, the, the safety and efficacy of vaporizers. We just don't have that long-term data. So again, you know, more research and testing of these products is needed.
0: And this actually kind of harkens back to our episodes on e-cigs, which we focused on vaping with regard to nicotine-containing products. But again, you're utilizing a lot of these oils and other sorts of solvents. There isn't a standardization in this market. And so there are a lot of other things in there that you could also be inhaling that might not be great for
1: you. So what about ingesting orally? So you can ingest marijuana in a lot of different forms. So edibles, you know, chocolates, tinctures, candies, capsules, oils. But the big thing to keep in mind here is that the onset for oral ingestion is slower and the effects are stronger and last longer than if you're inhaling or smoking. And so I I think a lot of the problems that people run into is they'll they'll consume it, you know, let's say they have a, a pot brownie or something like that, and they don't feel the effects in like 15, 20 minutes. So they'll eat more, not realizing that it could take, you know, half hour, 45 minutes, or even an hour for people to really feel the effects. Typically, it's between 30 minutes to an hour. So sometimes people do overconsume and then, you know, can run into problems where they're, where they're really feeling anxious or sort of, ad- I've heard, you know, described as like an out-of-body experience. So it's more difficult to properly titrate dosage due to the increased time of um, effect onset. Other people consume marijuana sublingually. So they'll place something under their tongue and hold it in their mouth. And within the mouth, there are a large number of blood vessels which can absorb cannabinoids. Am I saying, I always feel like I'm saying that wrong, but I think that's right. Um, <laughs> so these can be dissolvable strips, sublingual sprays, medicated lozenges, or, um, tinctures. And Andrea, I think you referenced that there are, what is it? Two FDA approved THC products, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One is uh, Sativax, Sativax, I don't know how to pronounce it. And that's clinically approved. It's a. I guess it's a sublingual THC. Yeah, it's a sublingual spray, excuse me. And it's a clinically approved cannabinoid medication that includes the entire spectrum of natural cannabinoids. Um, The time of onset for sublingual method of consumption is similar uh, to oral consumption, but some studies have reported a slightly earlier onset. And then finally, there's topical. So now we're talking about things like lotion, salves, bath salts, and oils that can be applied to the skin. Um, the skin, ha- and Andrew, you could speak to this better than I can, but the skin has a relatively complex absorption process, and it's based on a chemical's ability to dissolve in water. And so cannabinoids can penetrate the skin and work to reduce pain and inflammation. Um, there is some data um, that topical application of THC can work on localized pain. So sometimes it's popular among older folks who suffer from things like arthritis and it's not psychoactive. This isn't widely studied, but there is research that shows that the onset of action for topical application can be within minutes um, and it can last between one to two hours. I
0: would like to see more data on this. So, so cannabinoids, you know, obviously THC is one of those, they're steroids, meaning they're lipid based, they're fat based. And so in order to get through the skin, you have to find a way to make it hydrophilic. So fats are hydrophobic, meaning they don't interact with water. And so typically you have to have it in some sort of solvent or some sort of vehicle that will will allow it to, you know, get through that, that mechanical barrier of the skin. So I expect that their research will evolve over the next few years with regard to this topic.
1: Totally agree. So we know that some people who take THC, um, well, I guess we should say the most common use for medical marijuana in the U.S. is for pain control. Um, And so looking at the data, there isn't ample evidence that it's strong enough for severe pain. So you're not going to be prescribed medical marijuana after surgery or after a broken bone. But there is data that it can be effective for chronic pain, particularly for folks as they age. And for some, it could even potentially take the place of certain drugs, you know, over the counter meds like NSAIDs such as Advil or Aleve, um, which is a good thing, especially if some people can't take these medications if they have kidney problems or ulcers or other things like that. There's also some data that show that marijuana appears to ease the pain of MS, multiple sclerosis and nerve pain in general. Along these lines, marijuana is said to be a good muscle relaxant. Some people say that it helps to lessen tremors and Parkinson's disease. Uh, some people use it for fibromyalgia, endometriosis, uh, interstitial cystitis, and other conditions where folks are experiencing chronic pain.
0: And I think, you know, one of the more interesting areas, so we talked about how THC acts on these cannabinoid receptors in the brain that can affect motor function and coordination. And so one of the consequences of that is muscle relaxation. And that includes all sorts of smooth muscles as well as skeletal muscles. So one, you know, there's, there's a variety of different research areas that suggest that it's beneficial to treat eye issues. So you have muscles within your, you know, eye structure. Um, And so it can be beneficial for folks who have glaucoma. It also seems to be beneficial for folks who have various sorts of inflammatory bowel or other sorts of bowel issues um, where the smooth muscle in the intestines may be positively impacted and it allows them to consume food where previously nausea or or, um, gastrointestinal issues were preventing them from taking in enough nutrition.
1: It's also popular for folks who are receiving cancer treatments, right? Chemotherapy, it helps to manage nausea. It can help with weight loss. So there definitely are some some applications.
0: And that's actually where where the FDA approved THC containing compounds play in. So there's two brands, Marinol and Syndros. These contain the compound, which is called Dronabinol, which is a synthetic version of THC. Um, and then Sesamet, which contains Nabilone, which is a synthetic Um, analog to THC. These are used to treat nausea and vomiting, appetite, weight loss in individuals who are undergoing cancer chemotherapy and or individuals who have wasting syndrome associated with HIV infection.
1: So in short, I mean, just in terms of the the evidence, there is some evidence that THC is effective, um, you know, in terms of the applications that we just discussed. Now, is it safe? Are there harms? So let's let's dig into this. So the answer is it's sort of mixed. So there was this um, this article published in 2012 in the Journal of the American Medical Association (JAMA). It included over 5,000 participants, and the study found that occasional and low cumulative marijuana use was not associated with adverse effects on pulmonary function. So now we're talking about lung function. And the thing about marijuana is that you can't overdose on it in the way that you can overdose on other drugs like opioids. So to date, there haven't been any reported deaths resulting solely from cannabis use, according to the CDC. But as we discussed earlier, that doesn't mean that you can't overdo it or have a bad reaction. And this is really more common if folks are ingesting cannabis, because again, you, you can't really titrate the amount you know, of the the effect that you're getting, Um, whereas if you're smoking, it's more immediate, so people are better able to, to titrate that effect. So what does a bad reaction look like? Um, Lots of different symptoms, including confusion, thirstiness or dry mouth or cotton mouth, concentration problems, slower reaction times, dry eyes, fatigue, headaches, dizziness, increased heart rate, anxiety, and other changes in mood. In rare and more severe cases, people can experience hallucinations, paranoia, and panic attacks, or even nausea and vomiting. Now, again, these are rare, but these side effects can last anywhere from 20 minutes to a full day. And in in general, when we see these negative effects, we're talking about cannabis that's higher in THC that's associated with the more severe long-lasting effects.
0: Now, I want to just quickly touch on this because I know last week we spent a lot of time talking about the potential risks of CBD with drug interactions because CBD inhibits that enzyme that's involved in metabolizing a lot of various substances in our liver the cytochrome P450 enzymes. Now, yes, they're both cannabinoids, so they technically can both inhibit that enzyme, the cytochrome P450 enzymes, but actually THC is a much less potent inhibitor of this. So as a result, there is the possibility that THC consumption could have possible drug-drug interactions, but it's much less likely than when consuming CBD-containing products, which is actually quite interesting.
1: So what about uh, cognitive abilities? A lot of people ask about that. So there were these two large longitudinal studies that suggest that marijuana use can cause functional impairment in cognitive abilities, but that the, the degree or duration of impairment depends on the age when a person began using and how much how much or How long he or she used. There was another study conducted among 4,000 young adults in the coronary artery risk development in young adults study. It was a 25 year period, tracked people until mid adulthood, and cumulative lifetime exposure to marijuana was associated with lower scores on a test of verbal memory, but did not affect other cognitive abilities such as processing speed or uh, executive function. Also, wanted to note, and we'll share all of this to our show notes but actually in february of this year the american heart association they issued a scientific statement on the use of marijuana and its effect on brain health basically the scientific statement reviewed the safety of cannabis use from the perspective of brain health describes mechanistically how cannabis may cause cognitive dysfunction and advocates for a more informed healthcare worker and consumer about the potential for cannabis to adversely affect the brain a long way of saying I mean, the data show that low use uh, or, you know, minimal use, um, are there effects over time? Yes. But those effects are much more exacerbated if you're consuming a lot of marijuana, a lot of THC and over a very long period of time. Right. I don't know, like sort of a dose response. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. And, And, you know, of course, there are a lot of other factors at play. Right. So there's a lot of individual biology that's going on. So there may be people that are more prone to those detrimental consequences and people that are less prone, as is true for a lot of these intoxicating substances.
1: And we see, again, there's that acute intoxication where we know that marijuana affects memory, behavior, and impulsivity, but the long-term effects we're still sort of understanding. They may be domain-specific. There have been some neuroimaging studies that have shown structural changes in cannabis users, but the results are inconsistent.
0: I know we're not really gonna focus on this on this episode, but there are risks associated with smoking substances regardless of what they are right there are damage there' you know damage to lung tissue and capillaries and things like that um, there is evidence that on a kind of per unit scale marijuana containing products can contain more tars and things like that that can affect the circulatory system but when you compare it to the routine consumption folks who are consuming tobacco products are consuming a much higher volume of those so again it's kind of a a mixed bag in terms of, you know, risk reward of of consuming THC-containing products.
1: One other thing, we got a lot of questions about cannabis use and risk of stroke. And there is some, there are some studies that have described an association between cannabis use and increased risk. But it's important to note that there are some important confounders, such as cigarette smoking. So we know that cannabis users are more likely to be cigarette smokers and that cigarette smoking, you know, could, be modifying or confounding the relationship between smoking weed and stroke risk. So some association there, but more research needed. The NIH um, has a whole list of some concerns that have been raised. So there's been a link uh, between cannabis use and increased risk of um, motor vehicle crashes. Certainly, you shouldn't be smoking anything during pregnancy. Smoking cannabis has been linked to lower birth weight. Some people can develop cannabis use disorders and can have things like withdrawal. You know, they can experience lack of control and negative effects on personal and professional responsibilities. There's a long list, and we'll post all of this. Let's see. um, Marijuana can cause orthostatic hypotension. So experiencing like a head rush or dizziness on standing up. And actually I got to witness this firsthand and Andrea offline, I'll have to tell you, it's one of our friends from college. And we thought it was very funny at the time that he just would faint whenever he would smoke, but looking back, that's actually terrible and really Mm -hmm. quite dangerous. And so that's something else um, to consider. And some long-term users of high doses of cannabis, they've experienced this condition, and I'm hearing about this more and more, involving recurrent severe vomiting. Mm -hmm. So super rare, but it's possible. You also have to think about things like contamination of cannabis products with microorganisms, pesticides, and other substances. And yeah. So there, there, there are some risks that people should keep in mind. And of course, this
0: is all related to the fact that there is no standardization in THC-containing products. There are a variety of different types of products that you can consume in various ways that contain THC. There's no kind of federal or global standardization in how these are produced. It's isolated from plants. Plants can be grown, again, plants produce different levels of these compounds as well. So again, there there's a lot of variability. A lot of these potential risks are going to be higher depending on the source, the type of consumption, the amount of consumption, et cetera.
1: So super quickly, I think we just have to very briefly talk on whether marijuana is a gateway drug. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that's something we hear a lot about. So there is some research that suggests that marijuana use is likely to precede the use of other licit and illicit substances and the development of addiction to other substances. And, you know, there's some animal research, there's some human research that shows that marijuana use is also linked to other substance use disorders, including nicotine addiction, but you know, it's... The majority of people who use marijuana do not go on to use other harder substances. And this cross-sensitization is not unique to marijuana. We see this with alcohol and nicotine, which also prime the brain for a heightened response to other drugs and are, like marijuana, also typically used before a person progresses to other more harmful substances. And there are so many other factors besides biological mechanisms, um, such as... uh, Uh, social environment that are going to really impact a person's risk for drug use. And so there's an alternative to the gateway drug hypothesis, which is that people who are more vulnerable to drug taking are simply more likely to start with readily available substances such as marijuana, tobacco or alcohol. And their subsequent social interactions with others who use drugs increases their chances of trying other drugs.
0: And honestly, you know, I've seen this firsthand, right? You know, peer pressure is a thing. A lot of people are go through experimental phases. There's a lot of social, psychosocial factors that that go into whether or not somebody uses one type of drug substance or another if they progress to other substances. But I think that, you know, generally, the data suggests that, you know, marijuana is not something that is going to be addictive to the point where, Someone's going to seek an alternative drug in order to recapitulate or reproduce a similar high as they develop tolerance.
1: Beautifully said, uh, Andrea. We covered <laughs> a lot of ground, and I'm sorry to our listeners. This is longer a little bit little bit longer than usual. So, Andrea, anything to add, or do you want to wrap up and take us home? Yeah, I mean, obviously, there is a lot more
0: we could add, but but um, you know, maybe we'll revisit THC and and the cannabis topic at a future date, possibly as legislation evolves. But I think. I think it's a good point to wrap today. So if you want more unbiased signs, please check out our Substack subscription. We post content on Substack, as often as we can. But more than that, you get access to our private Facebook group, monthly live Q&As. We respond to questions and comments from our subscribers. And our subscribers get to submit questions from our Heard from the Herd topics on the podcast. And they get to help suggest podcast topics for future episodes. So check it out at Substack at theunbiasedpod.substack.com. Next episode, we're going to tackle another timely Topic, influenza. Yes, we've covered this before, I think nearly two years ago, but as it is flu season here in the US, it is always worth revisiting. We will continue to provide updates on COVID-19 and a variety of other science-related topics on our social media accounts. So be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science.
1: Yeah. Oh, I am a scientist. I am a scientist Yeah, Uh, I am a scientist